Well, what a segue. Talking about falling asleep during preaching. But if you do, and you die, I'm not Paul, so <laughs> can't help you. Well, I don't expect to go that long. But let's take our Bibles together, and uh, we're going to turn to Genesis. And uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, uh, the section crossing the chapter heading through chapter 9, verse 17. And uh, before I read the text, just want to uh, shout out to Aaron Long, who brought the word last Sunday. I know he's uh, uh, convalescing from his uh, COVID shot this morning, so he couldn't be here. Actually, I don't think he's here. Uh, so thank you, Aaron, for bringing the word. I haven't listened to the sermon yet, uh, but I intend to do that this week. All right. Well, let's look at the word of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. We'll read together. If you're using the church Bible, page 6, over to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and, and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. And I, I know I do this af uh, before I preach every time, but it's, it's purposeful uh, because... 
the Word of God is what's living and active. The preacher is merely a herald. And I don't want to devalue the, the responsibility of preaching, but we need the Spirit to apply this. So let's pray for that to happen. Father, grant us now illumination by your Holy Spirit of this truth. Cause your word to take hold in our hearts and bring about the change that you desire. We know that your word is powerful because you say it is. The same power to declare the whole universe into existence is in these books, this collection of your writings. And so, Lord, what we need right now is for a mere man to be faithful in the proclamation, but more than that, for your spirit to apply these truths to our hearts and so bring about the desired effect you want for each of us to draw us to you in salvation, to strengthen us in our faith, and to evoke in us uh, an overflow of worship. So God, make that happen now. And help me to say only what is helpful. And for anything else that is not, would you just cause it to blow away like chaff in the wind? And we pray this, that Christ may be glorified. Amen. Well, through billions and billions of water droplets, the sun shines. And those droplets acting like minuscule mirrors reflect the light. That light is dispersed and refracted into a glorious display in the sky. We've seen it. Now, my explanation is an oversimplification of what we know and appreciate, the rainbow. Now, because of it, because of the rainbow, or perhaps in spite of it, this Bible text gives us this explanation. The rainbow, though, has been infused with much meaning. We know this. Judy Garland sang about what's over it somewhere. And maybe perhaps if you follow the yellow brick road. Uh, in Irish folklore, you'll find a pot of gold at the end of it, if indeed you could actually find the end of it. Now, sadly, the rainbow has been co-opted for a perverse cause. I was in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, a couple days ago. We walked by a, a beautiful church building, a place where, I say once, Probably in the not-too-distant past, there was a group of people gathered there who loved the Bible. But now, with pride, and I use that word intentionally, declaring with the use of that now ubiquitous, stylized rainbow that they celebrate not what the Bible teaches, but sexual and gender diversity. Now, there's no disputing the beauty the, the, the grandeur, the, and especially if, if, you've, if you've seen the full arc of it meeting both ends of the horizon. Uh, we saw one of these last year. Kathy and I were, were walking. We tried to take pictures of it, and we looked at those after and just couldn't capture the beauty of the rainbow. But that rainbow, God gave this phenomenon for a reason. And what I want to do this morning is explore that. I want us to take a look, a closer look at our Bible passage, and I want to consider... Uh, not what's over the rainbow or what's even at the end or terminus of the rainbow, but rather 
the purpose, the objective, the, the point, the telos, the end of the rainbow itself. And so to do that, I want to use three headings. Uh, it's my custom to do this, to organize our thoughts. And my, my hope this morning, my prayer is to provoke us to worship, but also to make some application for our lives. And so here are my headings. First, there's the problem of evil. Second heading is common grace. I'll explain that in a moment. And thirdly, God's eternal promise. Problem of evil, common grace, and God's eternal promise. First, the problem of evil. And I think you probably do this like I do. Um, watch the news, look around. We, we wonder what is wrong with the world. I think it's a question a lot of people are asking. In fact, the political process, if you follow it, seems to, to find its energy answering this question. Vote for me, I'll fix it, the next candidate says. They always have an answer, or at least they think they do. According to those pundits, the politicians, the problem may be climate or racism or lack of education or inequality or inequity. And most people seem to have an opinion, but... No one has ever solved the problem, we know that, but God knows. In the previous section, the Lord had judged the earth. Why? Well, it's the age-old problem. It's the problem of evil. And I'll take you back to chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that Listen to this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an indictment. Verse 11 of that same chapter 6. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, we know the story. God brought down judgment upon every breathing creature. But out of that, he saved Noah and his family and pairs of every creature to begin again. Now the text, the Bible text in the previous section tells us that he chose Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 8. We're told there that he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Verse uh, 9 of chapter 6, that Noah walked with God. So everything's perfect, right? It's perfect. Well, not so fast. Look at verse 20 of our text that we read together. This, it, we opened with this section. We're just coming out of the ark. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So what kind of sacrifice was this? And what was its purpose? Well, certainly we could, we could say that it was an offering of thanksgiving, he was grateful, but it was a whole burnt offering, meaning the whole animal was consumed by, by the fire. And it was some of every one of the clean animals. This must have been a huge sacrifice. Verse 21 reveals the purpose of this. We ask why. Why did, why did Noah offer a whole burnt offering Sacrifice. Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And here it is. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
So the Lord is making this pledge. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For. Now just park on that word for a moment. For. The context here would allow for it to be read as although. Although. Although the intention of man is evil from his youth. And that included Noah. Although the Lord had already judged the earth because of man, that didn't solve Noah's problem, did it? Noah's own sin had not been dealt with. Noah's own sin needed to be atoned. The Lord had wiped out every breathing creature on the earth for the sin of everyone else, but he chose Noah, and he chose for Noah an acceptable substitute in the clean animals. And the text tells us that the aroma was pleasing. And what this did was it established a pattern for future generations. We we move ahead through reading in the Pentateuch. We find that animal sacrifices were a significant aspect of Israelite worship. That burnt offering was was wholly consumed in the fire. And Leviticus 1, if we want to understand the nature of that, Leviticus 1 tells us the very purpose of that kind of sacrifice. Leviticus 1, 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. So this is a set-apart animal. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted, and here it is, for him to make atonement for him. Atonement. That word to mean, you could say it this way, at one meant. It's the the thing to take what was separated and bring them together. The sacrifice served to make God and man at one. Well, what's going on here? Well, here's justice. There's justice. There was sin, so there's justice, but there's also mercy. The sin of the world was intolerable to the Lord, so he wiped them out. That's justice. And God had the right to judge. It's in keeping with God's eternally holy and righteous nature. God, indeed, must judge. But Noah's sin was also intolerable. But the Lord accepted a substitute. A substitute sacrifice offered in faith. And in that sacrifice, God's justice was poured out on the sacrifice And the substitute was an expression of God's mercy. So there's justice and there's mercy. In God's economy, for his own people, and like all people who have evil intentions from youth, that's us. For them and for us to be right related to God, rightly related to God, there must be blood. There has to be blood. We're dealing with this in Sunday school. The writer of Hebrews summarizes the very truth that undergirds the Levitical law and the whole reason for a sacrificial system. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here's the key. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what was true about Adam and Eve after they took that forbidden fruit in the garden, it was true for Noah. And it was true for everyone after him, and it's true for us. We've got to be honest with ourselves. 
think about your own thoughts. Just, you can stop there. What's the content of your thoughts? You have good thoughts, to be sure, but at times you know there is evil. There is evil in our hearts. At times we find we are bent towards sin. We have this desire to, to hoard, and we're often consumed with elevating our own selves. And we also imagine ways to feed our fleshly desires. And, and we do this in our minds. This is just our minds. We do this even while we know these things are loathsome to God. A conversation just before the service with a brother. We were talking about this. It's like, we have to be confessing all the time. Thought just shows up. Go, where did that come from? We know. We battle daily. Every moment with this temptation. Now, if God were just toward Noah, Noah would have been consumed. He would have been swept away. God was merciful to him. And if God were just towards all of his people, the Israelites, they would have been consumed. But God indeed was merciful to Noah. God indeed was merciful to the Israelites. And what he did was he gave them a substitute to deal with their problem of evil. So here's the question. Did the animal sacrifice really satisfy the justice of God? Well, the answer is no. I mean, it's yes, but ultimately no. Again, in Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why is it that the Lord accepted Noah's sacrifice? Why did he establish the burnt offering sacrifice in the law? Why did God do that? It's because of how God, before Noah, how God, before Adam and Eve, before they bought the lies of the serpent, before creation, before time, before all of that, it was decided that the Son of God, that promised seed of the woman, how he would become the ultimate and final substitute. The final substitute in a sacrifice. Again, from Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified. That word sanctified, that means made holy and acceptable to God. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for and that, brothers and sisters, is our hope. That's our confidence. Noah offered a burnt, whole burnt offering in faith, trusting that somehow, some way, sin would be atoned. The Israelites offered whole burnt offerings in faith, trusting that somehow, some way. And when Jesus was offered as a sacrifice once for all, that all included Noah retroactively. That all included Adam and Eve. That all included all of those faithful Israelites who, in genuine faith, day after day, year after year, brought their burnt offering sacrifice. And all includes any of us, any of us who look to Jesus in faith, the one and only sole acceptable and perfect sacrifice. And yes, in the way, maybe in a greater way, 
in a greater way that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, when the Lord God, when the Father in heaven looked down at Jesus being crucified at the cross, although it was the most heinous act of treason, God was pleased. Now, that's our benefit. That deals with our problem of evil. But now, in light of what Christ has done, as we think about some application today, is there any kind of acceptable sacrifice to God today? Is there any kind of sacrifice that God would accept from us today? Well, there is, but a different kind. The Bible gives us these. First, there's a sacrifice of genuine contrition, true repentance before God for our sin. When King David, when he sinned by taking the wife of another man and then having her husband killed after being confronted in Psalm 51, David writes, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Listen, I know the temptation. <laughs> this came up in Sunday school this morning. And if you haven't attended the Hebrews class, you, you ought to. Uh, listen, certainly listen to today's uh, lesson. But there's this great temptation on the part of believers even to make deals with God. People profess to know God, do this all the time. Whether they're true believers or not, I can't judge the heart, but I see this. This desire to, well, I've done this thing, I, I now need to make it up to God. Some people are kind of trapped in a religious activity of doing penance, following some ritual that somehow God looks at that activity and goes, oh, yeah, that's pretty good, I'll take that. I mean, the absurdity of it that somehow we could offer something in and of ourselves in addition to or instead of what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Someone said in Sunday school, it's got to be an offense to God. And it is. We don't make deals with God. We don't, we don't trade our sins for some act of goodness. Well, I'll do this thing and then it'll be okay with us, right, God? No, the only thing that God wants for us is a broken heart for our own sin. And that really is the essential foundation for any kind of faith in God. Beyond repentance as a sacrifice. In light of this truth, we can sacrifice our own lives, laid down, but not dead. The Apostle Paul gives this explanation after the wonderful exposition of the whole gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in light of the mercies of God that he's just explained, he says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. This is your spiritual worship. Die to self. Uh, allow, invite, look for the total authority of the Lord Jesus in your life. Live as one who is crucified with Christ. And as Jesus said, one who takes up his cross and follows. It's an abandonment of self and a, and a wholesale buying in to what Jesus has accomplished. Laying our lives down. Serving where he calls us to serve. Giving up what he calls us to give up. 
But then there's the response of gratitude and praise. Another kind of sacrifice that delights God. It's a sacrifice of praise. The writer of Hebrews says, Through Him, that is Christ, let us continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. We had an opportunity to do that as we sang songs together this morning. But don't let that stop when you leave this room. When you speak to other believers, give that sacrifice of praise. And if you should so be asked by an unbeliever, acknowledge what Christ has accomplished. Acknowledge His name. As believers, as those who have been are recipients of the promise of God, not to destroy the earth, we have a sacrifice in Christ. And so we respond. We praise Him for His love, for His mercy, for His grace. We acknowledge continually before God that through Jesus Christ, God's Son, that age-old problem of evil has been conquered. Second. Second heading, common grace. Now, my first point focused on the fact that, that evil pervades the world. You say, what's wrong with the world? But we know this. That does not mean that there's not good in the world at all. In fact, Bobby's book reporter's encouragement to read that book. I've forgotten the title. There are good things to enjoy, are there not? See, in spite of the evil bent of man, God has determined to do good, and not only for those that bow before Him, but for all people. And, and we know this. It's not hard to find that good, is it? I mean, we just look around. In nature, we, we observe the beauty around us. Or in the birth of a baby. Beauty in the family structure. Beauty in a, a wedding ceremony. The goodness of God in giving us technology, medical technology for cures, for vaccines, for, for treatments. All of, these, all of these things are from God. And they are for all, which is to say they are common. That's what they're called common grace. It's not common as in kind of substandard, but it's common, which just means for everyone. Common grace. The old uh, theologian uh, Wayne Grudem describes common grace this way. Common grace is the grace of God by which He gives people innumerable blessings. And here's the key. That are not part of salvation. They're not part of salvation. So God is good. He's always good. And His goodness is observable in all, so many ways in our, in our creation. Now, in our text, part of God's promise is that He would provide a way for the human race to survive and thrive. And so that's what they were to do. Instead of God causing the earth to convulse and destroy the man like it did, right? He determined that the earth would now be predictable. That man, the whole of the human race, could now find a home on this earth. And that God's gifts, His good gifts, were for everyone, whether they acknowledged Him or not. And Jesus acknowledged this truth. He said in Matthew 5, Your Father who is in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is how it is. This is common grace. Now to our text. From His goodness, then, God promised Noah and every future generation. He said, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the, the, the great rhythm 
that we can count on. Generally predictable weather cycle that allows for planting and harvesting. And he says this will not cease. Now, just minor point of application here. I'm all for, for good stewardship of the earth. I'm all for that. But there's this level of alarm and, and I know I've harped on this before, but, but it's a denial of the word of God. There's this level of alarm that is being sounded today that is just out of sync with what the Bible says. You're, maybe some of you are old enough to remember if you were you know, approaching the 70s. From the 1940s, long before I was born, but from the 40s to the 70s, the, the global temperature was steadily falling. There was this fear of an impending ice age. If you're old enough to remember, you remember that. Oh, the ice, the earth's going to freeze over. Then, after the 70s, the, the global temperature began to suddenly rise, sparking fears of the earth burning up. Now, with this sort of intellectual whiplash, they've just decided to call it climate change. It goes up, it goes down, but there's something wrong, right? Now, listen, I'm not trying to mock those who hold to these views. I know why. A and young people, if, if you're in a public school, you're going to a public university, you're getting inundated with this stuff all the time. It seems to be the priority of every corporation and all of the government. We've got to do something. Day, night, planting, harvesting, summer and winter. The Bible says these shall not cease. That's where our confidence should be, brothers and sisters. Again, it's just a minor point. Why are we confident? Because the Bible says it. And the scientists will say a bunch of other stuff. And if science doesn't agree with the Bible, the Bible is still right. And I know that's not a popular way of thinking about it. And we'll get mocked for that, I know. And I, I'll grant you that there are ways we don't fully understand what the Bible is saying about some of these things. But I can be certain of this, and you can too. The earth is not going to burn up. And it's not going to freeze over. God said, day and night. Planting, season, harvest will not cease. Well, following that promise, the Lord reiterated his blessing that he originally gave to Adam. He said to Noah, be fruitful, multiply. He, he commanded him to fill the earth again. Marry, have children, raise your children, send them out to marry and have children. Now, just think with me. Again, another, another point that kind of puts us at odds with the culture here. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Did God ever rescind that? Did he ever say, no, 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 hold on. We may be out of control here. No, <laughs> he didn't. But people live like he has. Uh, atheist nations like China, they, they used to have a one-child policy. It wasn't working because they realized, oh, this is a problem. Then they made a two-child policy. Then they made a three-child policy very recently, but it hasn't really fixed anything because most Chinese citizens admit they're just too selfish to want to have more than one kid. <laughs> and, and that's true of us in the prosperous West, isn't it? We don't even have enough children to replace ourselves. We, we are far too selfish a society to think about the inconvenience of multiplying and filling the earth. Again, this makes us countercultural under God's common grace. We can be confident the earth will continue until Christ returns. And we should fill it up with people. So if you're, well, this is not a command. <laughs> Good idea. If you're young and married, have babies. Anyway, next the Lord changes things up a bit. And uh, again, this is all under the banner of God's common grace. But what does he do here? 
Uh, before the flood, we, we might infer that man was only permitted to take his food from plants, fruit trees, grain, and the like. But now the relationship between man and the animals would change. And verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every, this is chapter 9, verse 2, upon every beast of the earth and on every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Now I'm making another inference here. Perhaps before the flood you could walk up to the bear or tiger and pet them. And, and maybe, maybe you could call a bird to land on your hand. And perhaps the, the creatures instinctively trusted the man. And I'm guessing, again, just an inference, I'm, trust, I'm guessing that that trust made it possible for Noah to simply call them to the ark. Uh, you, tiger, male, female, over here. Bird, come on. Right? You know, I mean, we think, how did it happen? In context of this, fear and dread falls on them. So that changes, right? Instead of coming to the man, they would run. They would fight if cornered. Why? Because God determined that they were now prey. Everything that moves, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Don't eat it raw. Drain the blood, cook it. So what we have here is a big picture, a reliable cycle for planting and harvesting, the source of food in every animal. This is for the good of all humanity. It is common grace. Now, to round out this new society, and I won't take too much time here, God then established a law. And not that the law was not clear before the flood, but uh, effectively codifying the standard of a just response to murder. Now, you know from the beginning of the creation story what happened. Cain murdered his brother, took him out because he was jealous of him. Lamech murdered somebody for injuring him. Well, the earth by then had become corrupt before the flood, become corrupt. And we can, we can surmise that it was full of violence and that violence could very well have been murder. And there was probably no proper system of justice that it was observed. And God is saying, this is how this works. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man there would be a reckoning, an accountability for every beast, proper stewardship, but also for his fellow man. And what was that accountability? Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here what he's saying is if you take a life, you pay with your life. This is the concept of equal justice, a law of retaliation, lex talionis. It's restated in the Levitical Code later on. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Now, again, another pause. Under God's common grace, it is good and right that someone takes a life, his life shall be taken from him. Now, I know maybe some of you struggle with the idea of capital punishment, that somehow that it's immoral. It is not. It is a gift from God, the law, to recognize the very sacredness of human life the only suitable structure for society is that when a life is taken intentionally by someone, he or she forfeits his or her own life. 
in response. Capital punishment is not immoral. It is biblical. Now, this is a big picture. This is a big picture. This, this structure of, of uh, society, reliable seasons, law, this is part of God's good gifts. And as we think about it today, this would, would provide it for Noah and, and future generations for them to thrive. As we think about God's common grace today, in many other aspects, how, how many other aspects of His grace to all mankind, what do we do with that? Because the people of God know where these gifts come from. We have to regard them differently, don't we? When we get sunshine and rain that waters the crops, when there's medical technology that brings a, a vaccine, what do we do? We, we see them not as entitlements, but as evidence of God's goodness. Listen, common grace. Here's some application for us as believers today. These are not salvific things. These are not things that position us for eternal life. They're just God being good to us all. But what does it do for us as believers? It teaches us to depend on God, doesn't it? We're not self-sufficient. We are dependent. And so because we're dependent, we must walk humbly before God. We must walk before God in gratitude for all that He has given to us. Gratitude for the job that you have. Gratitude for the ability to earn. Gratitude for the skills that you've been given. Gratitude for your family. Gratitude for the sunny day. Gratitude for the rain. Gratitude for the ground where the crops grow. Gratitude. We walk humbly before God, acknowledging that everything, everything comes from His hand, as it says in James. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He is reliable, and He gives good gifts. Now, secondly, common grace teaches us to love our neighbor, but it also teaches us to love our enemy. I want you to think about this. This is what Jesus taught, and he was pointing to God's common grace when he said this. He said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that. In other words, so that you display that you actually belong to the Lord. You pray for them. Why? For he, that is the Lord, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God does good to the evil. You, therefore, pray for those who are evil. You, therefore, like God loves the evil, you love them. Well, common grace also has one other effect. It leaves unbelievers without an excuse. The Apostle Paul explains, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He's talking about all creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So when after a life of enjoying God's good gifts, for those who have rejected Christ, it will be part of the indictment against them because they will have to give an account. God will present to the unbeliever all the beauties of creation. Look what I gave you. And he will culminate that explanation. Again, I'm imagining this. An explanation of how he gave his son. 
no excuse. Finally, God's eternal promises, and I'll be brief here. We ask the question, what is essential to life, right? We, I think we think about these things all the time. What, what do I need to live? And we, we, in fact, plan our days around this. Okay, go to work, get the paycheck, pay the bills, go to the grocery store. And if we're health is compromised, go see the doctor. We, we think all the time about what sustains our lives. And we, we proactively work so that we can live and to protect the lives of those we love, right? But what it all comes down to, essentially, the essence of what is essential to life ultimately hinges on one thing. It is the promises of God. And in the last section that we read together, we see this. It's a basic point with massive implications. From verse 8 through verse 17, the end of the section that I read, verse 8 through 17, we see the word covenant show up seven times. Seven times. What we discover here is that God establishes the covenant. 9, 11, and 12. Noah offered no terms here, right? Before God, he had no position. He had no rights. He had no standing. The only thing that he could do is receive. God established the covenant. Secondly, we see that God's covenant is with Noah. It was particular. It was particular but general. God said it was for Noah and his offspring and all living creatures, all flesh on the earth. The point here is that God decides to whom his promises apply. He gets to choose the object of his goodness. He decides who and who is not included. Third, God's covenant is certain. He says there will never again be a flood over all the earth. The same word that brought the whole creation into existence is the power to fulfill what God declares. When he says never again, he means never again. It's certain. Fourth, the sign of the covenant God gives, he says, is my bow, the rainbow. God sets the sign. God puts the reminder in the sky. He doesn't need to remind himself. God knows he keeps his promises, but he tells us, look up, see my bow. You'll know that I'm remembering my promise. I keep my covenant. God sets the sign. We're so easily distracted, aren't we? We forget. We get doing the things that we do, and we forget what God's word says. Then, then in, the, in the midst of a, 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 maybe a, a violent storm, and maybe there's fear. Maybe a tornado comes in. But after, there's the rainbow. Say, oh, yes. Oh, yes. God's got this. He's in charge. He made a promise, and he'll keep it. And finally, in this section, God's covenant is everlasting. That is to say, it has no end. God isn't going to change his mind. The only thing that, bi that binds God is his word. He cannot be moved or, or negotiated with. God's covenant is is everlasting. And so what do we do with this? See, what is essential to mortal life on this earth is the promise that God makes. And what is essential for eternal life is God's eternal promise. And the promise is for all who are in Christ. Now, what should you do if you're not a Christian? You're enjoying you're enjoying the promise that God gave to keep this creation going until Christ returns. You're enjoying that. But that gives you no assurance of enjoying God's eternal promises. So what should you do? The Apostle Peter 
when that crowd gathered in Jerusalem after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And if the Lord God is calling you to himself, what you need to do, friend, is repent. Repent and attach yourself to Jesus. Declare your faith publicly. Say, I'm with him. That's what the baptism reference is. It doesn't save you, but identify with Christ and his people. And if Christ has called you to himself, that means you have believed. And if he has called you to himself, that fundamentally changes the relationship that you have with God. You're no longer far away. You're no longer alienated. You're no longer a stranger to him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is true for us today. And this is the confidence that we have because of the eternal promises of God. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near. You did not crawl your way to God. You've been brought near. You did not find your way to him. He found you. So what do we do? What do we do? This was, this was focused on in Sunday school this morning. So much crossover here. What do we do, brothers and sisters, in light of the we, fact that we've been brought near to Christ? We need to be reminded of what we have. So we, Hebrews 10, 22 and 23 says, here's what we need to do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Let us hold fast to, con to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we have an unshakable hope. It is fixed in the eternal covenant promises of God. God will not change his mind. God will not back away. God will not be negotiated with. You are secure forever. So hold fast to that confession. So, wrap this up. The end of the rainbow, that is to say its purpose, is simply to remind us that God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. Through the sacrifice of his son, our sin problem, our problem of evil has been overcome. And in light of that fact, brothers and sisters, we can live each day in gratitude, gratitude and confidence for all that God has given. Enjoy the good gifts. And while we wait to be gathered to an eternal place of rest and joy and life with Christ, while we wait, Let's trust what God has accomplished and know that every one of his promises are irrevocable. That is our confidence as the people of God in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the example of Noah and uh, in your mercy and grace, you set him aside and set him apart and protected him. Lord, you show us that our evil ways need to be dealt with through blood, and you've given us your son for that. You've shown us that you give many good gifts. The righteous and the unrighteous alike experience your goodness in, in ways that we lose count of.
So we thank you for that, Father. Teach us to walk humbly before you in gratitude all the days of our lives. And Father, never let us let go of your eternal promises, knowing that as we remind each other of these truths, we are strengthened for that day when Christ returns. So hold us till that day. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.